The theme for the open semifinals of this year's Debatable IV was international relations. This is our post-debate analysis for that motion that we are releasing on our platform so that everyone can learn about the issues many of our participants got to engage in. On April 21 of 2021, the New York Times published an article that illustrates a key dilemma facing the Biden administration. Can it really work with Beijing on issues like climate change while effectively challenging Beijing on human rights issues as well? The transition into greener energy through solar panels is one of the ways the world can combat climate change. Currently, China controls majority of the solar supply chain. One of the key materials of solar panels comes from Xinjiang, a region in China where Uyghur internment camps are allegedly located. Recently, China held a business conference warning the world of unilateralism pursued by certain countries that would ultimately discourage cooperation. This statement was directed towards the U.S., who recently talked about self-sufficiency in supply chains. The U.S. now faces a dilemma. Should they cooperate with China on climate change or exclude China until it resolves its alleged human rights issues in Xinjiang? The motion reads, this house as the U.S. would cooperate with China. Much thanks to Ashley for contributing this motion and for giving us valuable insights. Welcome to another episode of Debatable with your hosts Nina and Kyle. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle. And and today we're joined by Ashley, our motion contributor for the International Relations Motion for Debatable InterVarsity of this year. You may know about Ashley because they were our equity officer in in Debatable Open. They're also the most recent MPDC champion. So we are already familiar and we already know each other personally. But for the people who might not know you yet, how would you introduce yourself to them? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Ashley. Uh, No preferred pronouns. Um, I'm currently the training director as well for the Ateneo Debate Varsity. And... I am also a fourth-year international studies student. I major in American studies, so IS is kind of IR is kind of like my bread and butter every single day. For two years, I've been nominated as the most outstanding student in our IS department. So hopefully, that gives a little bit more credibility to what I'm about to say and what I'm about to chica this uh, for this episode. Yeah, so I guess you can move on to the you know the meat and potatoes about the motion. Long story short, the motion is about cooperating with China. It's quite unique. Um, Would you like to tell us about the context behind this debate? So for people who haven't seen the info slide or maybe there are some nuances that were not in the info slide, what can you tell us about that? So this, actually, this motion came as like from an inspiration. The inspiration for this motion came from like a New York Times newsletter about the specific relationship between U.S. and China. So I think like a lot of major news outlets, if you subscribe to their newsletters, they are already dedicating a portion of their newsletters for updates on the relationship between U.S. and China. Because the influence and the power of both states will like inevitably affect the in- entire international system. Um, I'm also particularly interested in envy motions because of Greta Thunberg's popularity and like the Green New Deal and Alessandra Ocasio-Cortez. So I felt like it would be a fun motion to make. 
In particular, however, what made you decide to challenge our novices to a mixture of both the environment aspect and IR aspect? Because I think everyone knows that while you and I both like IR as themes, they're not the most popular option for a lot of people. And mixing it with environment might be seen as something that's, I would say, controversial, um, especially for people who already struggle with these themes. So what would you... What would you say is your reason for mixing these two topics and packaging it in such a unique way? Yeah, I think um, IR emotions, when you really boil them down to its core, it's just about a security threat. It's usually about a security threat or it's about state interest. So it's just like any other actor analysis motion for me. So if you can like boil down your entire prep time to ana- analyzing like what are the interests of this particular actor or the state that's being mentioned in the motion, I think it's just like any actor analysis debate. I'll buy it, it being more complicated because you have to talk about states. You have to cite like, I don't know, like framework for example. But in particular, I wanted to mix IR and environment because in IR, there are essentially old and new security threats that we always talk about. Old threats would be like another state encroaching on your territory or like an internal domestic unrest. So for example, the South China Sea issue in the Philippines, that's like an old security threat. Um, New security threats are those that, number one, are new ones to the generation right now and are usually products of technological advancement. Two, um, a lot of states don't have a clear working framework for how they solve the security threat, which means that um, debaters can have like a lot more creativity in terms of how you're going to approach this particular security threat. And three, the solution to the threat is often conditioned on international cooperation. So it still kind of goes in line with the whole globalization trend. I think that terrorism is a good example of new security threat, but I think that's already like used to much in tournaments and I don't want to risk like that we are also like dealing with novices I think that's quite overused already in tournaments. I decided to pursue IR and Envi. I think that a lot of debaters already have precedence for like Envi motions. Most Envi motions will have extensions that still relate to how an environmental policy or an environmental principle will impact states. But also, I think that debaters are already quite familiar with a lot of international frameworks that are usually cited for Envi topics like Paris Climate Agreement or the Tokyo Accords. And of course, the US as a perspective which I chose for this motion is already like an extremely debatable motion. A lot of people are inclined to study about US when they start like matter loading on IR. Like when you check any major news outlet, it usually talks about quite a US and Western perspective. So it's relatively like an easier approach to an actor analysis for this motion. Yeah, the info slide was actually very helpful in telling us that what the debate is about, like it's about a trade-off between, you know, protecting the environment or making a transition into green energy versus being consistent with our stances about human rights. So um, the info slide says that I think something like China controls a lot of the majority of the supply chain when it comes to solar panels, but at the same time, they're massively violating the human rights of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Am I correct to like think that government has to prioritize the environment over you know, protecting human rights? Yes, yes. I would agree that there's definitely a trade-off that's necessary for either team to take. So Gov would have to say that, well, we need to prioritize the 
environment over the human rights issues in Xinjiang and then opposition could counter react that well you can't really pursue any human any like environmental or any like universally good policies or US foreign policies if you're not prioritizing as well the labor or like the behind the scenes production of what makes like a greener economy for example for the US I don't I think that opposition could like outright reject that slave labor shouldn't be the basis for this like greener world that the US is aiming for. Yeah, so taking that into account, how would you recommend government side or government teams in general to frame or characterize um the world that we're living in so it's strategic for their side? Yeah, so I think from the get-go, debaters might be inclined to argue like pretty basically that the U.S. should care for the environment because the climate crisis affects everyone. But in IR motions, states usually pursue foreign policies or like states usually pursue relationships with other states because they have multifaceted interests that address more than just environment or that address more than just economics. So in this particular case, I would recommend government teams using a realist theory or a realist approach to this IR motion, which is to say that their framing should follow the principle that states are selfish, they prioritize their survival, and their cooperation with other states is conditional on getting gains. Otherwise, they just be relying on themselves most of the time. They'd be um, relying on self-help. So I think it's already clear how like a generic a generic but a very important discussion I think should still come from government on how envy as a priority can be tied back to these principles. But beyond that, I'd say that in order to showcase the urgency of why we need to cooperate with China now and we, why we can't like delay or procrastinate on this cooperation, we can look at the other priorities of the US and specifically like the playing field or the context where US is in. So first I talk about context coming from Gov, I think that in the info slide, she's warning against Xi Jinping's warning against unilateralism can be utilized by government to frame the urgency in and of itself. I think they can talk about what Xi's action plan might be if ever U.S. continues to show that they are uninterested in cooperation. So, like China will frame you as as like a unilateral state; they're not willing to cooperate on environmental issues, for example, and that. That's going to be bad for U.S. interests overall. So Gov could use that framing to like kind of preempt opposition's case. Gov could also say that China might be inclined to create blocks in the supply chain of other technologies. So in the motions, uh, in the info slide, Xinjiang provides like raw materials for a lot of technology. It's not just for solar panels, but that could also be extended like in the framing. And that the U.S., while they have their own companies and while they can probably manufacture as well, they can't possibly match the manufacturing capabilities or the access to raw materials that China has. So then U.S. would then be faced with like a bigger economic problem of finding a state that can match the raw materials and manufacturing capabilities of China and one that has like a relatively stable economy. Second framing that I would recommend for government would be like domestic economic benefits. I think that it's conceivable for both houses to say that China is an economic powerhouse in the international system. They already like house a lot of manufacturing for U.S. products for example, they provide raw materials, they provide labor, which make goods cheaper. I think further risking the tension and eventually like the breakage of this vital economic power might harm the economy of the U.S. as a consequence. Like, for example, goods might become more expensive and then corporations would have to be forced to like relocate their manufacturing companies. And I think like an extension of that econ framing would be COVID recovery. So I would ask myself in government, is it really strategic for the U.S. to become antagonistic to a relative recovered economy such as China, I would 
ask like how will this antagonization affect co consumers within the US and how will this affect like research cooperations on the origins of COVID or like of other epidemics that might begin in China in the future if you keep like isolating China they will also pursue isolation and that also harms us like as like a global leader overall final framing like uh, I think that it could probably come from like closing houses already would be like international I would say that well the US has a vested interest in reclaiming its position as a world leader after like Trump's presidency I think the US was quite embarrassed and now like the environment is an important interest point and it's something that US can actually win cooperation and allyship on so I think that it would be unstrategic for US not to take that opportunity I noticed for this motion there's quite a lot of frames to choose from yes especially yes. given that well I guess it's a BP round it has to be very like flexible and teams can be very liberal with how many frames they choose or what frames they choose. But if you were to run this motion, what arguments therefore would you be prioritizing, especially if you were an opening half? Mm. Um, the arguments that I'd prioritize, um, I'd say that the burden really of opening half is to prove that it is in U.S.'s interest and capability to prioritize environmental interests over humanitarian rights issues, right? So that's already like taking the trade-off from the get-go. So I think from government launching to discussions would be sufficient. First, I'd talk about like the capabilities of U.S. So what's the extent of the impact that U.S. can do in either situation? So Gov can prove from the get-go that climate change cooperation is more feasible compared to the humanitarian rights issue because I mean it's not reasonable for up to say well we're going to liberate Igheers like I don't think that's a promise that opposition can make and even if they do make that promise I think like God has a lot of room to criticize and question how exactly that model is going to work um, I think for op open opening government they can talk about how capabilities is an important discussion because this makes the weighing of whether they should cooperate or not more clearer I think like discuss the discussion of impacts is going to be like a secondary issue already. I think they're good, but they are easily deadlocked. Like the impact of promising, well, we're going to have like greener energy versus well, we're going to liberate like the Igheers. I think these are issues that can easily be deadlocked by questioning how exactly it's going to work. I think that gov opening government should prioritize with answering the premise of what can the US do right now, what can they achieve, and then they can win the issue of feasibility. A second um, priority argument I feel like for the US would be domestic politics or like domestic wins for the US for example I think that um, there are a lot of contexts to choose from so I would um, start with talking about how there are already unnatural weather patterns in the US like hurricanes or wildfire wildfires or like heat strokes are becoming an epidemic so the US is slowly becoming unlivable right because of the climate crisis so there's definitely a push from average reasonable people in the US to pursue climate change policies hence like the popularity of the Green New Deal for example so the cooperation with China is the next logical move then to that popularity of the Green New Deal to the popularity of like pursuing greener alternatives or more like sustainable alternatives to energy so I think that China's cooperation, i.e. like making an economic trade deal in terms of like supplying supplying the solar solar panels will make the Green New Deal a cheaper policy pursuit as compared to like manufacturing it by ourselves, which will take longer since we need to build like the industry to create like solar panels. We need to like find an alternative for raw materials. So essentially it will cost taxpayers more. So I think that it could also extend to a discussion like in terms of like a buy 
Biden or a Democratic president's perspective, there's an obvious need to respond then to this demand coming from like the voter base for like re-election purposes. But I think more importantly, in terms of the likelihood of passing this major legislation that will essentially alter the economy of the U.S. So on the issue of feasibility, I think government can already preempt, like in comparison to an outlandish principled consistency of regretting HR issues in Xinjiang but never actually being able to do anything concrete anyway. I would say, like, just to like caution that kind of line of argument, I would say that human rights are an important issue, but that should apply primarily to our citizens, our American citizens. Our priority as a state should always be domestic politics, especially when intervention is likely to accrue any major changes anyway. We don't want to waste taxpayer dollars. We want to ensure that the kind of policies that we pursue are actually going to benefit American citizens. So those are like the two. So to reiterate, I would talk about what can the U.S. do and what kind of impacts they can like likely promise. And then second, I would talk about like domestic politics and why it's more likely to get support for like environmental, like pursuing environmental cooperation as opposed to human rights like intervention. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting how if you were an opening, I think the pri- the primary strategy would really be to focus on effectivity as well mm-hmm. as like most of the impacts and pragmatic things. I was trying to think while you were speaking of an extension, like assuming you were my opening, like what I would extend on. And I was finding it, I was having a difficult time given how thick the case was already. But I was thinking of arguments perhaps on like um, diplomacy and how having increased cooperation with China also in in turn changes China's internal politics, right? And I was thinking, is there a feasible angle to work with that? Or would you have other suggestions as well for extensions? Yeah, so for extensions, I think that's already like hitting what I like prepared. Um, the extension on I think government can really question whether there is something to benefit from the constant antagonization of China. I think government, like closing government, could weigh like the is principled consistency super duper important. Like, is there historical precedence for the U.S. being extremely consistent with human rights issues? So I think like um, closing government can mitigate already in terms of like historical outcomes. Is the U.S. really principally consistent? And if you can prove that the U.S. is not principally consistent, then you can also say. That. So if they're not like principally consistent before and their like logic before was just to pursue whatever is economically more beneficial, then obviously you have to go with environmental cooperation with China. I think, um, again, you have to question the extent of likelihood of liberating the Igheers, but I think more specifically how the liberation pursuit, no matter how minor it might be or how, mi- or, or how soft line the case of opposition might be, you can always extend it to the point of saying that, well, you are promising that you hear something that you can't even fulfill. You're wasting taxpayer money on something. You can even like risk like a World War III, for example, because you want to pursue this liberation and like I don't this liberation costs of the U.S. And I think that even if you were successful with liberating the Uyghurs, which is incredibly unlikely on opposition, I think that Gov can even question what message exactly does it send to your allies and enemies if you are still on this interventionist tendency? Like, this is the whole reason why the U.S. is being heavily criticized for its interventionism in the Middle East. So I think that reinforces the idea that, well, the U.S. is kind of like a bad leader because they keep intervening. But, you know, if you look 
look at Afghanistan, for example, the results of that intervention isn't exactly good. They just like removed their forces right now, and you know the state is the the country is still unstable. So U.S. is interested in removing or undoing that kind of reputation. A second extension I could talk about on CG would be, I think that addressing the climate crisis is an international effort, and the U.S. is the only actor that can pursue this, and this is the only policy that can address the concerns right now. Um, so, like the new security threat discussion that I talked about earlier, I think CG could even talk about the unique position of U.S. to influence allies in the West and even in the East who are directly affected by the climate crisis, but are not directly affected to the Igir to the Igir Muslim issue, right? So. So, I mean, states are more incentivized to care if they actually have something to gain from it. So in terms of strengthening the allyship for the U.S., then it's clearer under closing government. And then I would also tie it back to how U.S. is interested in restoring its position like as a respectable global leader. And, you know, like winning brownie points for the climate issue is one step towards that because it's like a more concrete step that it can take as compared to just promising that we're going to pursue greener policies but never actually like doing the legwork to do so. I think we can now move on to opposition. In the first place, um, how would you reframe the idea that the United States can be self-sufficient when it comes to transitioning to greener energy? On the second level, how can you reframe um, the feasibility angle? How can you say that it's not going to be a waste of taxpayers' money if we're going to be quote-unquote principled with our stance here in cooperating or not cooperating with China? There are two main burdens of opposition then after like the case that I just launched. Um, primarily, it like revolves around self-sufficiency. So I think, number one, OP has to prove that it's feasible in short term. And number two, it's sustainable in long term. Like if they can pursue a self-sufficient, like greener, like solar panel production, then that's great, right? So in terms of feasibility, I would say that U.S. already has like a lot of manufacturing Manufacturing capacity, like it's not, it's not some random country. It has the resources, it has like the money and the power to do so. But the problem is the kind of energy that is being focused on, the kind of energy production that is being focused on in the U.S. right now is fossil fuels and coal and like creating carbon emissions. But the technology, like greener technology and solar panel technology and how to manufacture that, um, like how to mass manufacture that already exists, it's just not as widely used in status quo. So it's a matter then of opposition proving that greener technology and green energy production and solar panels can be manufactured mass manufactured in, within the US because the components already exist. What is lacking in status quo, like previously, was political will, but that's already resolved with like the new Green Deal push. A lot of uh, average reasonable people already want like greener, like a shift to greener tech. So I think in terms of can the US create its own supply chain, then that's, I think that's resolved then. But secondly, in terms of sustainability, I think that a solar panel industry that almost replaces fossil fuels and coal would provide a lot of jobs for Americans. It would incentivize more research in renewable tech, and it can be manufactured in a way that is more consistent with liberal principles um, of the US. So there's no risk of overhaul then in the future in case of like a democratic protest. So for example, the model coming from government is that, well, we rely on China to supply us 
as our solar panels. But then that's already like risking a democratic protest like later down the line that questions, why are we um, having an economic trade deal, a very important economic trade deal that is reliant on slave labor, that is reliant on the abuse of minorities. I think that the U.S. is consistent in terms of like overhauling whatever is problematic with its trade deals in the past. I think there's like a lot of political will in the domestic sphere of politics in the U.S. So I think that the risk of overhaul is easily proven coming from opposition. Um, so in terms of like a long-term form of checks and balances in the cooperation with China, that might happen on Gov. But when the kind of industry that we create for a greener world is now principally consistent with what we want to see in the industries that we have, then that kind of overhaul is not likely. So it's sustainable economically and principally for the U.S. I was thinking before we go to the arguments, I was thinking on possible strategies in opposition because it seems to me that it's not just reliant on, well, using status quo, that U.S. needs to be self-sufficient. I was thinking there could also be an angle of the U.S. cooperating with another country that was in China. Is this also a possible strategy for opposition to take or do you think it's rather weak and would lead to possible harms in the debate? I think that for opposition, they can definitely say that they can rely on other countries or even like create global cooperation or like a regional block, for example, to incentivize like a shift to greener tech so they can bring in more allies to shift to greener tech with them. They can incentivize like third world developing countries that are their allies to also shift to greener world and provide them with raw materials or resources. So I think that's quite a feasible quite a feasible argument to launch. Um, I think though that a primary case coming from opposition should still respond to the whole, w- whether it's feasible or not. But if they can prove that it's feasible, the, the counterfactual is feasible, then I think that's already like a pretty strong case coming from opposition. Yeah, because I was saying that like, even if you make Nina's stance, which is um, a partner up with another country, I think the motion sort of assumes that China still has a comparative advantage as compared to like other countries that you that you might be able to partner up with. So I, I agree with you that the feasibility, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. the self-sufficiency argument is super important, regardless of what policy or counter policy you might make on opposition. But that being said, what initial arguments would you run on opposition? Like if you you already mentioned the burdens of opposition, how would you translate that in terms of argumentation? Yeah, so to reiterate, I think like the burden of opposition or OO in this motion is to prove that it is counterintuitive to U.S. interests to cooperate with China. So again, they have like a lot of creativity for what they're going to do as counterfactual or prove as counterfactual if like they pursue the creation of their own solar supply chain, whether that solar supply chain involves their own allies, whether it involves the empowerment of like other developing countries so that they can also like help their economies, etc. So I think that in order to answer the what should be the initial arguments on opposition, um, I was I will respond to this by like directly engaging with what I've already talked about for government. So first, the primary discussion of opposition is just to prove that antagoni- antagonizing China is okay and that it's going to be unavoidable anyway. Like I think that framing cooperation should be in terms of it's a never-ending path of roadblocks, right? Because principle 
principally, U.S. and China have principally oppo- like pr- like principally opposing views almost in everything, like from how they run their states, how they interact with other states, both powerful and not so powerful states, how they like create their own economies or like economic models, the Bretton Woods system versus the One Belt One Road policy. I think it's already pretty clear that they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. So as eventually, cooperation will hit another roadblock, and then the U.S. is faced with yet another dilemma of do we cooperate or not? So I think like it's never ending. Second up could also say that concession with human rights might snowball then into other concessions with China's values. So they might be forced to concede that, yeah, it's fine if you bully other countries, for example, in the South China Sea issue, because yeah, you're more capable of utilizing the resources anyway in the islands that exist there. So I think that that can be something that could be extended coming from opening opposition, but it's quite a sneaky frame then. And then finally, I think that um, I would like always tie back to the launching of discussion on the capabilities of U.S. and why it's important that if the U.S. is going to make such a major shift in its energy production and essentially the structure and like the foundation of its economy, it should be something that they can fully control. It should be something that starts with go- with um, agreements that are aligned with their own principles. And I think that uh, that's going to create a more sustainable industry at the end of the day. Second argument that I would launch on oppos- opening opposition would be in terms still of domestic interest. I think that it's economically better to pursue self-sufficiency and reject cooperation because then the domestic economy will not be dependent on another state and it's less likely to be countered by a democratic protest later on that might happen. Two, I think like job generation by the green energy shift is more likely and it's more beneficial. And then I think that still ties back to the earlier discussion that I talked about on how it's important for the Democratic Party right now if that's going to be launched at any point in the debate because the Democratic Party will win on both principles and they can win also on results. So there's like a greater chance of re-election for Biden or like for another Democratic president to be to inherit like the presidency. So what would you run as extensions now for opposition? Because I was thinking of a possible argument on optics like how cooperating with China might lessen the hegemonic power of the U.S. in relation to other countries, especially how other countries view U.S. in relation to China. It might just strengthen China given that they're able to make a really big country like U.S. bow down to their demands, or at least that's what it's going to look like, right? Were you... Was this something that also crossed your mind or do you think there are other more strategic argument arguments that can be run here at closing opposition? Yeah, so for, I think like generally, so my first, like uh, I would say that it's good for debaters to start reading up a little bit on the hegemonic challenger theory. So before I answer that question, I'm just going to talk about it a little bit. So the hegemonic theory in IR essentially says that the balance of the international system right now is unipolar, meaning that it's dependent on the US. And the hegemonic challenger would be China. So if China succeeds, then the world as we know it would then be curated to fit China's values as a state. So for example, comparatively, US hegemony meant that there was a rise of democracy in third world countries. We have like the Bretton Woods system, meaning that the global economy is centered around the US dollar. A converse world of that is a world where China successfully wins against the US in the hegemonic battle would then be a world where sovereignty is emphasized, like absolute sovereignty. So like the democratic interference and like the interventionism of US is painted then as like principally wrong because states should be the ones determining how they run their own country. And like the one belt, one road 
policy or the economic model of China will then win out. And these stand like in direct contrast already to U.S. values. So I think like in any U.S.-China motion, um, an important issue that should eventually come up would be on which model is it more likely that the U.S. would retain and strengthen its hegemony um, if it's like if the motion is phrased in the same way like this motion is like this house as the U.S. So I think that this is a tertiary interest probably of the U.S., but I think that it's still an important discussion anyway. So to answer the question of what extension should be launched for opposition, I would say that if the U.S. does not take a firm stance um, in, in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs, I think we have to question on opposition, what message would it send to allies? So in terms of can we count on the U.S. to defend us against um China, whenever they like start to bully us in terms of like debt traps or in terms of like encroachment in the South China Sea and other like disputed territories. A lot of ASEAN countries, for example, are allied with the US. So if an ASEAN country sees that, well, the US is already conceding, what does that mean for our relationship with the US? So, you know, like international relations is a like it's a domino, there's always a do- domino effect of each foreign policy that's pursued. Um, as well as in terms of like the hegemonic challenger theory that I discussed, I think that how does answering the question of how does cooperation cooperation essentially close off any opportunity then for us to retain its hegemony or even launch like a or even act as like as a counterbalance to that to china if ever it does become like a successful hegemon like the us will lose its power to question china and like counterbalance china because right now the setup seems like if china threatens you and you concede then china is right and therefore you sacrifice your own principles so i think that in terms of um, overall, self-sufficiency is still better in terms of proving that the U.S. can still stand as a global leader. So this is, again, like an international perspective than on like the extension. Yeah, the thing that I love the most about the, our conversation tonight is that there's actually like a lot of ideas, but there's it doesn't seem like there's a single way to deliver those ideas. Or for example, I don't even think we talked specifically about the situation in Xinjiang. Like we, we just assumed that there is a bad situation in terms of human rights there. We also didn't really talk about like specific matter as to how we know that XYZ actor is going to react in a particular way. So I think that actually tells me, um, for the first time, actually, I think that I'm, I'm having an epiphany right now. Like the, the, <laughs> the fun that you could have in an IR motion, which is that there are ideas that are worth running, but even if you know just something and not everything, there is a way for you to spin that and fit it within that greater narrative. And on that note, what advice would you give people who struggle with IR emotions in general, especially in cases like this where the info slide alone has so many moving parts, so many proper nouns and things like that. Like it kind of gets overwhelming. So what advice would you give those kinds of people like me who are so easily <laughs> overwhelmed by um, topics like this? Um, so I think that you can't really be good, quote unquote, at IR motions if you don't have like a good grasp of history, like just the basic what happened in history. So like basic math on why the world is what it is today. I don't I don't particularly am good at memorizing dates or like names of people. But if you can just like name why this concept of Western supremacy, for example, exists or why why do we worship the US so much as Filipinos? I think if you can answer that and there are so many answers that you can choose from, then that's already good. Two, I think it's really important in IR to have a good grasp of basic IR theories. There's so many, many theories in IR. Um, I would recommend 
undebatables episode on IR as like a good reference point for this. So like reading on like realism, liberalism, Marxism, even constructivism is a good start. Um, there are a lot of like resources available. There are a lot of like simple run-throughs or summaries. But if you want to be serious, I would recommend like a textbook that I had to read for second year. It's Piotti and Kaupi's Intro to International Relations. But that book is good because they actually like break down each specific theory into like what's the core belief and how do you then you like you can answer for yourself how you apply it in rounds third advice would be subscribe keep yourself like keep yourself in the loop right so find a system that works for you personally i hate i i'm not a super like i'm not the person who likes reading matter files and i'm not really super good at creating matter files what works for me is like listening into comedy talk shows like trevor noah daily show and like john oliver because it works for me i also subscribe to like newsletters since it's like digestible uh easily understandable social media is a good example as well if you like launching examples um i would also recommend that if you do matter load or like do a matter file you should divide it between you and your partner because ir does get like super duper depressing and overwhelming at, at some time so kind of it's better if you like divide it um lastly i think that it's also a matter of luck like honestly i had a partner before she already graduated but she seemed to be like super duper lucky with ir motions she hated reading about any ir news but if she does like if she just chooses one article it's usually the motion that does come up you know if you can read the trends you can like do predictive models that's good but i think that relies too much on luck during rounds what's more important is that you make your case simple like understandable to the adjus to a novice since i think like a lot of the reasons why ir rounds turn out to be like those low scoring rounds is because one team might have like a super duper complicated case and like there's no clear clash there's no clear engagement because it's so complicated and highfalutin language etc but if you keep your case simple it doesn't automatically mean that it's not respondable right and then secondly um just keep practicing ir motions i was super bad at ir motions before like um i keep losing rounds because i keep launching like complicated discussions of what i read because that was our lesson like the previous week but it doesn't always work so but i think that if you've gotten used to debating ir it's really just a more layered actor and analysis debate sometimes like in this motion the actor is a state it's us so you like look into what's the interests and the priorities of us right now sometimes the actor is the international community but if you can understand that all actors are inherently interested in something and secondly they're willing to do something to get what they want that's essentially the logic of most IR rounds so thank you so much Ashley for that wonderful discussion I learned quite a lot I think that Kyle learned a lot here. I learned so much. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I wish I could subscribe. <laughs> like, if, if you make content, I'd subscribe. Yeah, you should make your own content and I would subscribe and you'd be my main source of IR material because I swear that was chef, chef's oh, kiss. So ADV is planning to launch like a lecture series. Mm-hmm. So I do want to dis- discuss more about theories that I'm familiar with since... I think debaters should rely on theories more to prove their cases and like prove principles. So yeah, hopefully if that does launch, um, hopefully we, we do get the support of people in the debate community. So that's it for this episode of Debatable. Once again, thank you so much and we'll see you in the next one. Bye! Bye-bye! Woo!